Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus. Today we are in Exodus chapter 34. We'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 7. While you're turning there, I just wanted to add a little bit to last week's sermon where we talked about ways in which we can help understand the word better. And one of the ways I left out and I was reminded of this week and was appreciative for the reminder is that we do learn in community. We don't learn in isolation. Part of that learning in community is gathering together in this service. But part of that community, learning in community also happens as we gather together in our homes, in coffee shops, in Bible studies to seek to understand better and to encourage one another in that seeking toward understanding. So I would encourage you to take advantage of the community that God has given you as we seek to understand and learn more about him. Today we are in Exodus 34. We'll read actually the first eight verses. God has brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. He has brought them to Sinai. He has given them the law once. They have failed miserably with the golden calf. Moses has gone back up the mountain to receive the law a second time. And God says this. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion And sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we thank you for your word, for the spirit that guides us in the study and understanding of your word. For the truths that it reveals about us. Lord, sanctify us today through the preaching of the word. Open our eyes, our ears, open my mouth as I speak today. So that we we may be changed and so that you may be glorified. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Have you ever spoken to anyone about the gospel And come to the point in that gospel discussion, that gospel presentation where maybe you turn to John 14, 6, or maybe you turn to 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, and you're struck, you're stuck there by the revelation that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. 
Sometimes we get pushback from those that we're speaking to. Really, the only way? Sometimes we get pushback from ourselves because we are as influenced by our culture as others are. And we ask ourselves or we are asked the question, what about those well-meaning people who do really good things? They work at soup kitchens. They hand out groceries at the food pantry. They, they seek to help poor people alleviate their poverty and their suffering. Why is Jesus the only way? That's our question for the day is why is Jesus the only way we live in a culture that elevates inclusivity over the exclusivity of Jesus's claims that he is the only way he is the only truth. He is the only life. So today we will look as we consider these verses from Exodus chapter 34 to see why is Jesus the only way? As we consider that question, that answer, we will see that God must judge sin. And at the same time, God must or God forgives sin. Galatians 3.10 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. As we consider this, this words, cursed be anyone, we are taken to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, God is laying out the consequences for disobedience. And he says, beginning in verse, verse 15, he says, cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of the craftsman's hands. And sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien the fatherless or the widow, then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is a man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed, then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who has sexual relations with any animal, then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his mother-in-law, then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who kills his neighbor secretly, then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person, then all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out, then all the people shall say, Amen. God goes through the the Ten Commandments here in in different wording and in different ways. And we're used to hearing the Ten Commandments, but he goes through the Ten Commandments and he lays curses upon the people of Israel for anybody who breaks or does not carry out or uphold the words of the law. Cursing in the Old Testament is a relational word. It, It talks about the breaking of a relationship. 
As we go to Genesis 2 in the Old Testament, we see that God gave Adam a command forbidding him from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a penalty for violating that command, which was death. And in the cursing given in chapter three, we see a break in relationship between humanity and nature, between man and woman, and then finally between humanity and God. God is a God who has called out a punishment upon sin. He has said that cursed are those who break the law. And that cursing involves death. That cursing involves broken relationships between humanity and nature and between humanity and God. But we also know from Scripture that that the curse must equal the sin. Think of Exodus 21 and the eye for an eye laws, the tooth for a tooth laws, where in Exodus 21, as God is speaking to Moses, he goes through and he lists out retributions that must come along for breaking the law. Theft is met with restitution of what was taken, plus a penalty to make up for the lost income from what was taken. Violence is met with punishment equal to the crime. Premeditated murder is met with capital punishment. Accidental murder is met with a loss of livelihood as you move from your town, from your home to a city of refuge. And even it takes death to be redeemed from because you are forced to live in that city until the priest dies. And then you're allowed to go back home. The punishment for the crime must fit the crime. As we saw a couple weeks ago, some crimes are more wicked, more severe and deserve a harsher punishment. And the punishment for sinning against the eternal, infinite God must fit the crime. The cursing must be infinite and eternal in order to satisfy God's justice, his judgment and his wrath. And in order for God to be the just God that he is, the holy God that he is, he must judge and punish sin. You see, you and I have a fundamental problem. Now, our world doesn't think this. Our world thinks that we're all fundamentally good and that we can hand God our goodness and he will reward us for it. But in our natural state, the reality is that we hate God. We seek autonomy from God. We seek our own independence from God. And as a consequence of this hatred toward God, as a consequence of this idolatry, which in Deuteronomy 27, 15 is the first thing that is cursed, is our own idolatry. We deserve God's wrath against our sin. But what about that good that we can bring to God? What about all these wonderful good things that we can do? Won't God take those things into account? Absolutely. In fact, he already has. In Isaiah 64, 6, we're told that all the good things that we can do are like filthy rags before God. Brothers and sisters, the best thing that we can offer God our good works are filthy medical bandages filled with pus and the infection 
of our sins. That is all that is the best that we have to offer to God is filthy rags. And for God to remain God and to remain true to his nature must judge and punish our sin. And that's what he says here in our scripture today from Exodus 34. He says that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. God will not allow sin to go unpunished in his justice, in his righteousness. He must punish sin. And yet our scripture today holds another truth in tension with that truth. And the other truth that is held in tension with that is that God is a God who forgives the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Brothers and sisters, when we read this passage, we have a tendency to gloss over it. We have a tendency to forget the tension, the reality that is there, that God is both the God who judges sin and the God who forgives sin of those who love him. How can we finite, broken, sinful human beings who have nothing to offer God except for the sin that makes our salvation necessary? How can we find forgiveness? It's not in ourselves, but it is in the one who judges sin and has judged the sin of those who are called according to his good purposes. It is through Jesus, the larger catechism. We we read questions from the shorter catechism today, but the larger larger catechism talks about Jesus nature being both human and divine. Jesus was special in history in that, as we confess in the Nicene and in the Apostles Creed that he was born of the Virgin Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit. He lived the perfect life as a human. Now, why did our Savior, why did the only Redeemer of God's elect have to be human? Well, the the larger catechism gives us several reasons. The first is to improve human nature. From Hebrews chapter two, verse 16, we read these words for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he has to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. How did Jesus improve human nature? He lived a sinless life. He showed us as an exemplar, as an example, that holiness is possible from a human. The other one, other thing that he did for us as a human, according to Romans 519, is that he perfectly obeyed the law of God as a human. Adam, as a human, was called to obey God and he failed. We as humans are called to obey God and we failed. Jesus, as a human, was called to obey God and he succeeded. As a human, he suffered and made intercession for us. As a human, he has firsthand knowledge of our infirmities. As a human, he makes it possible for us to be adopted as sons of God. 
And as humans, we have as a human, he has made it possible for us to boldly approach God at his throne and in his throne room. But Jesus wasn't only human, he was also divine. He was fully human and fully God. But why did he have to be fully God as well? So that he could be strengthened to avoid sin and strengthened to survive the full wrath of God for our sins. Several years ago, a movie came out, uh, The Passion of the Christ. Very graphically portrayed the physical sufferings that Jesus went through. And a friend of mine in in his his own uh, very simplistic way, but very deeply said to me after we saw the movie, he said, I understand that probably wasn't half of what he suffered. But the only way he could have survived that was because he was half God. Amen, brothers and sisters. He could only have survived the full wrath of God for our sins by being God. He is the infinite and eternal God in human form. The fullness of God dwelled within him. And so we are given real value and effect to his suffering for us. He was fully God so that he could gain God's favor by satisfying the wrath of God so that we could be given the spirit of God. So that all of his enemies and our enemies could be conquered to bring us everlasting salvation. Jesus is the only way to God because he is the only one who could satisfy God's infinite, eternal and righteous judgment against our sin. We are told in our world, brothers and sisters, that all religious systems, all religious viewpoints, all religious thoughts will lead us to God. And in some respects, that is absolutely true. One day when Jesus returns, every single human being, religious, irreligious, whatever, will stand before God. We will either hand God filthy rags. Or we will stand covered by Jesus. Cleansed from our filth by his righteousness. And we're told that the means to be covered by Jesus righteousness is to repent of our sins and to believe. That is our only hope. He is our only way. God is the just judge who must judge sin. And he is the God who forgives. And the event that holds those two truths in tension. Is the cross. Where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died. The only hope. The only perfect sacrifice. For sin. A couple weeks ago. Amber Geiger was convicted. In the death of Botham Jean. Now if you don't. If you aren't familiar with the story. You probably are. But Botham Jean was sitting in his apartment. Amber Geiger came home. She was a law enforcement officer. She came home from work. Not paying attention to where she was, she walked into an apartment that she thought was hers and she saw a black man sitting in her apartment and she shot him and killed him. And in the ensuing investigation, as the trial unfolded, we were found out that in the ensuing investigation, uh, evidence was tampered with, witnesses were suppressed and the police department just did a horrible job. In bringing justice to this situation. After she was convicted. After she was sentenced. Botham's brother Brant. Addressed her. Many of you have seen the video. 
He addressed her and and called her to belief in Christ. Said your only hope now, and I wish you didn't have to go to jail, but I understand why you do. But your only hope now is faith in Jesus. I call you to that faith. Not only did he call her to faith, but he offered her forgiveness. And not only did he offer her forgiveness, he walked up with the judge's permission and embraced Amber Geiger and wept with her as they grieved the loss together of his brother. Well, while many of us are familiar with that and have seen it made its way around Facebook, we aren't quite as familiar with his mother's statement, which was given at her son's church later that evening. She was asked in that in that gathering, have you forgiven Amber Geiger? She said, that's between me and Amber. She said, but I understand why my son did. We taught him. We raised him in the church. We raised him with the reality of forgiveness of sins. She said, but there is a problem. And I paraphrase here. She said, there are injustices that must be dealt with that have not been dealt with. My son was allowed to bleed to death on the floor in his home. The police department covered up evidence that would have sped up this process. Forgiveness can and should be offered. But justice must be done as well. Brothers and sisters, as sinners, we have attempted the murder of God. We have walked into his home. And we have rebelled against him. And we are full of wickedness, rebellion and sin. And we stand here asking forgiveness. But forgiveness cannot be given until justice is done. And justice occurred on the cross. Why is Jesus the only way? Because Jesus is the only human to have ever lived. Who could satisfy the justice of God. God can't just allow sin to go unpunished. For forgiveness to be given, sin must be punished. Justice must be done. I call you today to repent and to believe. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for these words, for these two truths, these two realities that exist eternally and infinitely in you. That you must judge sin. That you will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Sin must be punished for justice to be done. And yet at the same time you are the God who forgives. The God who is compassionate. The God who is slow to anger. Remind us when we question our own salvation. To look to the cross. Remind us when we question whether or not justice has been served in our own sins to look to the cross. And if we have not turned toward you in faith, remind us that you will judge sin. You will judge our eternal sin eternally. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.